in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you remember a couple months ago, on uh, December, we looked at Advent at the first 17 verses of Matthew, and this is where we're heading back to. Uh, we're going to spend the next uh, couple months in Matthew. Um, so I'm excited. Uh, this is going to be a good journey. I, I think it's really interesting. We saw in Job the shadow of Christ that we continue to talk about. Uh, and I just wanted us to get to a gospel so that we could see the substance of Christ. We could see who Christ is, and we can really reckon with that um, going forward. But I'll go ahead and read. Uh, and today's text is, is typically read at Christmas, uh, but I want to be clear, it doesn't need to be read at Christmas. <laughs> it can be read any time of the year, because <laughs> we have a Savior who's come. So uh, go ahead and look down at verse 18, and we'll read Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. So if you have your Bible there in front of you, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. For she will bear bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke, woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so beautiful, and it is such a wonderful thing that we read that, Lord, you can say in your word, we can hear through Matthew from you that you, Lord Jesus, have come to save sinners. And that is such good news for us this morning. So, Lord, help us to see and behold and wonder at your grace and kindness. Do that in us, Lord. We can't do this in ourselves. We can't, in our own strength, do anything on our own. So we pray, Lord, that now we would see and behold wonderful things from your word. Give us the grace that we need to see and believe what your word says. Do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Before becoming uh, a pastor, uh, I served for a while working uh, at ABL, if you're familiar with ABL at all, uh, the rocket factory down the road. And I remember when I first started working there, um, I had an engineer who'd been there for a long time, and he told me we were, we were working one day in a, I forget where we were working, but it, it doesn't matter. We were working in an area that um, he said, uh, you need to be very diligent about what you're doing. You need to be very diligent. You need to pay attention. Um, and there was, a, there was ladies that were, had worked there in that area for years. The one lady said she'd worked there for like 20 years. And she was like holding an explosive in her hand, and she's just like, 
tossing it around, like, just, and I, I thought to myself, like, even as I sat and watched, watched her do that, I thought to myself, like, she'd been here for so long. She's heard this. She's read all the safety manuals, done all the things. She's holding something that could blow me and her and all of us up in one moment, and yet she's still regarding it as, as though it's not that just kind of flippant, flippant in the way we're doing it. Now, I'm not saying what she did was right. I don't think it was, but I just stand there and I think about it, that, that situation, and I think about it like a text like this. Uh, we, we hear this text, and we see it, and we're like, yeah, of course, we've seen this. We hear this every Christmas. We read it, and, and I, I'm fearful sometimes that when we hear a text so often that we'll approach it kind of like that lady was approaching the explosive she was holding. She doesn't realize the, the magnitude by which she's holding in her hand. Now, if we remember, we remember what we talked about, and I'm sure we, we don't, so let me give you a recap of what we talked about back in uh, December. But chapters 1 through 17 really talked about the genealogy, tracing Jesus' genealogy from, from Abraham to Jesus. And his whole point in doing that was to pick up several themes, but it can be summarized very well just in verse 17. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. Now, Matthew's not just like a numbers guy. He doesn't just love numbers just for the sake of numbers. When he tells us something like that, it's very important. And I think this is a very good quote that, that kind of summarizes it. He says this, uh, Greg Gilbert, he says this. He says, Matthew begins his book with a genealogy that traces Jesus' ancestry directly back to King David, and then on back to Abraham himself. Fascinatingly, Matthew stylizes his genealogy, divided into three generations of 14. And 14, as any good Jew would have known, was the number divided or arrived at by adding up all the values of the Hebrew letters DVD, which were for David. Matthew, like all the other Christians, practically scream at us as he begins his story about Jesus. King, king, king. And this morning, we're going to look at the birth of the king. This is very important. So I want us to look at this today. If you're taking notes, you're going to see one one central thing today, uh, and it should be at the top of your page. It's this. It's that Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, saves his people from their greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is the sin which dwells within our own hearts. Our greatest enemy is the sin that dwells within our own hearts. Now, that may be, like I said, that might be kind of like that, like that uh, explosive the lady I worked with was holding. Maybe that's like, oh, yeah, of course, like, of course we know that. We, we hear this all the time, right? But do we really believe this? That's the question. Do we really live like we believe this, that that's the greatest enemy of our lives? Now, look down at verse 18. This is what he says. This is what God's Word says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. You notice just the way he even starts off and says that. He's saying Jesus Christ is born in such a way that's unique. It's utterly different than all the kings that have come before him. Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who will be unlike every king that has ever preceded him. There's a kind of uniqueness even about the Lord Jesus. He says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now he's going to describe it. And I want you to see in this first section the resolve resolve. It's the resolve to divorce her secretly. Now, oftentimes, I love how Matthew picks up, like we see from different angles, the birth of Christ, but he picks up from Matthew, we see him pick up the perspective of the husband, of Mary's, Mary's betrothed. He picks up Joseph's story. This is what he says in verse 18. 
when his mother Mary, that's Jesus' mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice there's, there's several times he mentions there the word betrothed, the word before they came together. He's emphasizing the beforeness of the situation of them being sexually united. He's saying what happened, Mary coming, becoming with child happened prior to them uh, consummating their marriage. Mary's pregnancy is said to be caused by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice what it says in verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who accomplished her pregnancy. But I, wanna, I want you to notice something about betrothal. Uh, betrothal was this legal pledge. It was basically like a legal pledge for marriage. And the, the legal pledge essentially was way more serious than we understand engagement today. Engagement today would be the equivalent of their, like, I'm not even sure what it would be the equivalent of. Betrothal was actually like a legally bound situation where, where it required actually divorce to separate betrothal. But betrothal was also a period that they did not have sexual union. They didn't live together, but they betrothed or they covenanted themselves together. The other thing to notice is that couples within the betrothal period, they were allowed very little privacy together. Actually, it's very likely that Joseph didn't even hardly know Mary. He, he, so I want you to picture the situation that's, that's kind of forming. Here's a man, Joseph, likely probably, I mean, like he knew her, obviously, but he did not know her well. He would know her, and he was actually probably related to her at somewhere, like probably like a second or third cousin, which that's how the rest of the world functions in that way, still do to this day. But couples were allowed very little privacy. But Joseph hears word, oh my, my wife-to-be, she's pregnant. They hadn't consummated the marriage. They hadn't come together as a couple, but she was found to be with child. He would hardly have any reason to trust her when she claimed, no, I'm, I'm not, it, it's not from another man. Joseph was, the only, was doing the only thing he knew how to do. Notice what he says in, in verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put him to shame, but put her, put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Notice the way that Joseph's described. He's described as a man who's a just man. He's described as a man who is righteous in character. Now, I don't know about most, most of us, but if we heard that our betrothed has now been found with child, and we obviously know the child's not from us, I don't think most of us would be like, well, you know, no harm, no foul. I guess we're, we're good we would probably want to, want to throw some shame, make, make them hurt a little bit in the same way that you're hurting. That's not what Joseph does. What's he do? He's a just man, unwilling to put her to shame. He didn't want to make a divorce a spectacle. Now, Deuteronomy, we could look at a passage in Deuteronomy. I think I'm just going to skip it today. You can look at it. Deuteronomy 22 talks about the, the punishment that was supposed to happen to two people found sexually united outside of marriage. And the re- law required that both parties be stoned. Now, Joseph knew this. He would not have been unaware of this, but Joseph didn't pick up a stone. The other man wasn't found, and he wasn't going to do that. But what he, what, he could, what he couldn't do, though, since he was righteous, he couldn't stand the thought of having others assume he has an illicit child. But he also didn't want to degrade toward, be degrading toward Mary. And how could he even trust her, even if, he, even if that was the situation? But what does Joseph choose to do? He decides, he decided for divorce. 
and he's unwilling for shame. Now, there was a legal loophole, as it's called by one commentator, that he could divorce her quietly on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what he chooses to do. He chooses to divorce her secretly. Now, notice what happens. Verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But now notice what happens. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you're, you're in your brain thinking about something. You're like consumed in your brain about thinking about a situation or a decision that's upcoming, and you really haven't told anybody else, because really it's maybe embarrassing or something like that. But then somebody says something to you. It's like they've answered your question for you. And it's, it's, like it's, a, it's like a lightning bolt from heaven, if you will. What we're about to see is ten times that lightning bolt. To the nth degree, it's a, it's a lightning bolt. Notice what he says in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now we're going to see revelation. So that's the first section of, of resolve. Joseph has resolved to divorce her secretly. Now we're going to look at the revelation. And the revelation is don't fear taking her. Don't fear taking her. Joseph was deeply focused on the dilemma at hand, and the angel comes to him and gives him direction. Now, this is not without precedent in the Old Testament. We see this happen over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, others, many others we could point to of angels coming and revealing to them what they should do. But notice what the angel goes on to say to him in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The reason the angel gives to Joseph why he should keep Mary is that the child's not from from another man. The child is from the Holy Spirit. Mary has been faithful to Joseph. She has not been unfaithful to him. And the angel's saying to Joseph, do not shrink back. Do not shrink back from taking her as your wife. Now, notice the reason. He gives three reasons, I would argue here. The first is supernatural. It's supernatural, and it's of divine origin. Notice what he says in in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, there again, we see this lineage, picking up on the lineage of who Joseph's the son of, but he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's a doctrine that the church has always talked about, which is called the dual natures of Christ. The dual natures of Christ. And by the dual natures, dual just simply means two, the two natures of Christ. And the two natures simply are the the divine nature and the human nature working in tandem. Now, this is a mystery. I'm not trying to say that I understand this fully. We would be foolish to say that we do understand it fully. But in the same way that Christ is not truly human, sorry, if, yeah, if Christ is not truly God, then he is not able to bear the sins of humanity. In the same way, if Christ is not truly human, he can't emphasize, empathize with us as sinners. The dual natures of Christ reveals how Jesus could say from the cross or going to the cross that it's his joy to go while simultaneously in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done the dual natures of Christ. It's the divine nature and the human nature coming together. And I'm going to show you what, why that's really important here in a second. So Hebrews 2, 17, just to see it in another place. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, and I would add there, without sin. 
There's the, there's the divine and the human nature. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, human, in every respect, insert, except for sin, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So notice what he also says. So we see the supernatural, the divine origin. We also see the sovereign, the sovereign, the divine control. The same God who said in Genesis 1, let there be light, hovered over a virgin 2,000 years ago and brought forth new life. And that new life, that new creation, the creation that started in Genesis 1 is being recreated And we're watching it here. The same one conceived from the Holy Spirit is the same one called Emmanuel, God with us. And we see God speaking again. He's coming and recreating all humanity. And he says, I love what Richard Sibbs said about this. He says, we could not be with God, but God must first be man with us. We were once with God in Adam before he fell, but there being a breach made, we cannot be recovered again till God be with us. He must take our nature so that, so that he may reconcile our persons. And that's, that's the reality we're seeing forming here. But notice the last piece. So it's, it's supernatural, it's sovereign, and this is the point I really want you to see. It's salvific. It's salvific. And it's saved from our enemy. Saved from our enemy. Notice what he says in verse 20 and 21 again. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And he says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus' name in Hebrew would be the word Yeshua. And it means, very simply, very woodenly, Yahweh saves. Basically, God saves. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He says, call him God saves. Now, it's interesting. We need to think for a moment. The angel tells Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now, I want you to think about for a second what people, when they think about salvation, what they think they're being saved from. What are they being saved from typically? If you were to just walk up to somebody on the street and ask them, hey, hey man, Jesus is going to save you. They'd be like, from what? From oppression? From, in this first century context, from the Romans? From, from enemy oppressors? From all those people who are keeping us captive? In a similar way, Israel was held captive, and Israelite audience would have had this in mind. This is exactly actually what Jesus then argues with the religious leaders later and says to them, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is what they respond with, as we read this morning, verse 33 of John 8, it's up on the screen for you. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. Now, I want to be clear about that, that just one, that one little statement. How could you say that, we, that we'll become free because we've never been enslaved to anybody? At that time, they were enslaved to the Romans. 
they, 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 it's like talking to people in, in a concentration camp and being like, them being like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I'm, I'm free here. No, they weren't free. They were enslaved currently, even as the Jesus says this. But they say to him, then Jesus responds to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, he flips the script on them. They're thinking, well, we're not, in, we're not enslaved, though they were, just a weird paradox in John's gospel. We're not enslaved to anybody, Jesus. You don't understand. We don't have, we don't ha- we're not enslaved. Who are we enslaved to? And Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And now we're like the lady I used to work with at ABL. Here it is. Here we have a moment where we get to handle something that's very um, delicate. Not just delicate, something that's very explosive. And we can either, we can either handle it with laissez-faireness, or we can handle it with the severity by which Scripture's calling us to handle it. Mine and your most fundamental problem is not against other people. Mine and your most fundamental problem, most fundamental war, is against sin. Now, sin is not some big black goo vat somewhere out there that just keeps splashing us. Our real enemy is not other governments. Our real enemy is not a lack of education. Our real enemy is not the fact that people aren't nice to each other. This text shows that our greatest enemy is sin. I want to be clear about something too. It's on the screen, this next quote. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. I'll say that one more time. We are not sinners because we sin. So that's the, the notice where the, the identity piece is sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we were once enslaved. If you're a Christian here, you were once enslaved to sin. If you're not a Christian here today, I will say you're still enslaved to sin. Every person you work with that is, does, does not know the name of Christ, every country we pray for that is, that is 50% unevangelized are living as slaves and they don't even know it. We are not sinners because we sin, brothers and sisters. We sin because we are sinners. Now let me give you some ways we don't believe this. Parents, to believe that our greatest enemy is sin means that the words that come out of our mouth, which we say often, I expected better of you, little Johnny, little Simmy. I expected better of you. Those words should never come from our mouth. Those were, and I, I'm the chief of sinners in this way. They should never come from my mouth. Why? You know why? Because our greatest enemy is sin, and my son's enslaved in it. He doesn't need more behavior modification. He needs a savior. So all my discipline needs to be, son, I know the sin that is plaguing you because it plagued me too. Because it plagued me too. Or church, let me give you another example. To believe that our greatest enemy is sin means that we should not expect people who enter our front door to ever have their lives in order. If there comes a person in the front door and has their life in order, I want to say they're probably faking it. You know why? Because, that, because we believe this doctrine. We believe the doctrine of sin. 
the grossness, the grotesqueness that the angel says we, he's going to save us from our sins. So it means that we should expect sin to be deeply ugly. Let me give you another one. If we measure, and this is oftentimes happens in, in churches, especially, especially if we've been in church a long time, what begins to happen when we hear a text like this, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What we begin to do is we begin to measure our sins in comparison to one another. We'll, we'll begin to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as that guy. <laughs> and then when we have somebody real jacked up in our community, we're like, well, look, I'm, I'm really good. Look how good I am in comparison to this one. But rather than examining our lives in comparison to others. When we come to Holy Scripture and we examine our life to, one another, to, 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 the, to the mirror of God's Word, we begin to see I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. I am much more gross in every single way than I thought I was. Spouses, it sounds like this. Let me give you another example. My marriage isn't that bad. Uh, look at the Johnsons down the road. Like, you hear them all the time. The cops were called on them last week. Cops haven't been called at our house. The kind of sin comparison does not take the doctrine of sin seriously. It does not take what God's perspective of sin seriously. John Owen, he has a, he has a little phrase that I want us just to consider. He says this, Be killing sin lest sin be killing you. You know why? You know why he says this? Because our greatest enemy isn't some political force out there. Our greatest enemy is not some other people across the aisle. It's not anything else. It's the sin that dwells so close within us. And if you don't daily kill the sin from within, let me promise you something. It will kill you. It will kill you. So that means we need to believe a doctrine of sin in our lives such that when we see sin come out of us, we don't justify it, we don't minimize it, we don't excuse it, we do what Owen's talking about here and we kill it. We pick up the sword of God's word by his spirit and we cut its head off. Sin is a whole person response, and this means that repentance must be a whole person response as well. Jesus Christ, though, here's the hope for us. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, saves his people from their greatest enemy. And our greatest enemy is the sin which dwells within our own hearts. The thing that is the biggest problem in your life is sin. And the hope of the gospel and the hope that we're given here at the beginning of Matthew is that there's one who's come to slay it. So I want you to see now the reversal. So we've seen the resolve of Matthew. We've seen the revelation from the angel. Now I want us to look at the reversal, turning things around. I want you to see this first element of satisfy which is fulfilling Scripture. Now, there's going to be a phrase that I'm going to talk about here in just a second, in verse 22, that Matthew uses. He just, he just, if it's a drum, he's just like banging on this drum, the whole book of Matthew. 
he says this phrase, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's saying Christianity is not a new religion in that sense. It is a fulfillment. We believe Messiah has come. And he is just going to continue to bang that drum to the point that, notice what he says. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, that's usually the verse that we see in like bathrooms, weird, weird little things that we see in bathrooms. They're like, oh, yes, behold, Emmanuel has come. And we're like, oh, that's good feelings deep down, right? There's nothing wrong with things in your bathroom. I'm, not, I'm just saying that's typically where we see it. That's typically where we see things like that. And I want you to pay mind, if you want to turn real quick, you don't, have, you don't have to turn actually, it should be on the screen. Isaiah 7. I want you to consider this passage where it was in its original context. Now Ahaz was a king in, in, of Judah at the time where there were two superpowers bearing down on them. Now God promised Ahaz, this is, this is the promise that he actually told him, this is what's going to happen and this will be fulfillment. He says, therefore, the Lord himself, this is Isaiah 7, 14, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, if we're reading this as as just a Christian in the New Testament, we may think, well, I wonder what Ahaz even thought about that. Did he even understand that? I would argue prophecy in the Old Testament is kind of like viewing, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of viewing multiple, multiple mountain ranges you ever had the experience of just standing and seeing like beautiful vistas? It's really difficult to determine which mountain is closer to you. And it's even harder to determine how far that mountain is away from you. And that's actually kind of how biblical prophecy is. When you look out over the vistas of prophecy, it's really difficult to discern. Well, that mountain, that's exactly 200 yards away. It's really hard to determine that. And in the same way, there's actually what happens in Scripture is this was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, but it finds its ultimate fulfillment, as Matthew says, in the Lord Jesus. The promise to Ahaz was a child would be given to deliver the people from oppression. Now, I'd argue in the book of Isaiah, this was Hezekiah, okay? Now, I don't think it was necessarily a virgin, a virginal birth then, which again, it's kind of the, that, that picturesque, you're seeing two mountain ranges, which mountain is which, <laughs> It's kind of hard to tell. Obviously, they knew there was a young woman who was going to give birth. I'm not denying the virgin birth. The virgin birth is very clearly seen here. But the fact that there's a virgin birth kind of shows this isn't fulfilled in the Hezekiah. This, like Hezekiah came, he, he delivered the people, but it's not fulfilled ultimately. And then you read down a little bit more in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The same son, he says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Okay, that sounds maybe like Hezekiah. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor. All right, sounds right. Mighty God. Whoa, what? Hold on. Everlasting Father. Uh, Prince of Peace. Do you see how they would be like, okay, that, I don't think that's Hezekiah. There's somebody else coming. And the wonder of Isaiah's pro- prophecy is that the, the enemy that Ahaz thought was his biggest enemy, which was these two, this villain over here in Syria and this person, he's saying, no, 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 no. Your greatest enemy is sin. And the one who's coming is going to defeat that. The greatest enemy who's coming is not the Syrians. It's not this person or that person. It's sin. 
And he's saying, this is coming. There's going to come one, verse 7 of chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. And you think to yourself, that's not Hezekiah. (laughs) I don't know who that guy is, but that ain't Hezekiah. Because the moment Hezekiah died, it'd be like, well, I guess it wasn't him. And Matthew's saying, this Jesus is him. He's here. He's conceived. He's in the womb of your soon-to-be wife. And the fulfillment is that this, this deliverer, this child that will be born, will be called God with us, and he will put our sin to death. Notice what he says in verse 21 again. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christian, do you know what this means for you? This means for you that if you're a Christian, if you're united to Christ, that you have died to the body of sin. It means that all your sin, past, present, and even for tomorrow, is gone. You've been buried with him in his death. In Christ's death, you've been buried so that you would live with him in his life. This transformation comes when we put our sin to death. When we trust in Christ, we no longer wallow in our sin. We confess it, we turn from it, and we hate it because we can. Because Jesus has saved us from it. Now, I find oftentimes what, what happens, there's, there's sometimes what happens when you're a Christian, is you become a very weak-conscienced Christian. You, you sin in such a way, maybe, maybe some of you will understand what I mean by this. You'll sin in such a way that you're very sensitive to your conscience. You're very sensitive to the sin you've committed in your past. And when they have sinned, what they sometimes try to do, which, is, which I would argue is incorrect, they shouldn't do this, they try to hate their former way of sin. But they do so by just trying to make themselves feel bad for how bad that sin was in the past. And if that's you here today, I want to remind you, that's not what the passage is telling us to do. That passage is te- this passage is telling us all this took place to fulfill what the, pr- the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Christian, who's trying to just feel bad for that season of backsliding, it's dead. It's dead. It's gone. It's no more. You've been saved from it. Walk in that. Walk in the freedom that Christ gives. Now notice what Joseph does. I want to continue going on on this. So he, it's, it's reversal. So it's fulfilling Scripture. It's satisfied Scripture, fulfilling Scripture. He also took his wife. Now he can't, now he can't just stop here and say, well, he can't wake up from a dream and be like, well, I don't really feel like following what he said. I he has to do something. So this is what he, he does in verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's really highly inconvenient what has come my way. I think I'll do that tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'll I'll seek obedience. No, no, no. He gets up and he immediately does what the angel has commanded him, and he does something that's very telling. He names him. He named his son. And the act of naming, 
just so I'm clear on this, he is the act of legally adopting him. He's saying, when he gives him his name, now typically when you would name a son in, in, the, in Old Testament times, but New Testament, first century times, you're basically saying, this is my son. I'll give him the family name. So typically it would be like, I would have named Simeon, like Simeon Daniel. So he has my family name. It continues to go forward. But, jo- <laughs> but Joseph doesn't do that. He basically forsakes his right to name his son because it's not his. And he names him. He goes ahead in verse 25 and says, But he knew her not until she had given birth, and he called his son Jesus. Now Joseph goes ahead and adopts Jesus as his own. But now we can't respond in the same way that Joseph did in this moment. We can't all go take Mary to be our wife. Duh. But the response that is demanded from this text is no different than Joseph's response. Because it's the response of faith. Now, Joseph responded appropriately by believing the revelation that came to him. And we, in like manner, have to respond to the revelation given to us. That revelation, what what Joseph saw vaguely in a dream, that Joseph, one day the son that's in your mother or in your wife's womb is going to forgive your sins. What he saw vaguely in a dream, we behold the substance. We, got, we not only behold the substance, we see the new creation that God is creating in Christ Jesus. The new creation that needs to be created in each and every one of us. The same God who spoke light into being in Genesis 1 is speaking into the hearts of those who have responded by faith. So the only question you need to ask yourself as you wrestle with this text is simply, are you believing in the one who can redeem you from your sins? Are you, do you believe, first and foremost, that our greatest enemy is the sin within? And then secondly, if you believe that, do you believe on the one who saves his people from their greatest enemy? And if you do, there is great freedom. I just want to read to you one more time what Jesus says in John 8. I think it's just so telling. It's the same passage that he tells them that they're slaves. He says, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples. And here's the result of it. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Have you been set free today? That's the question you should ask. Have you been set free? Or are we continually going back to the, to the bondage of slavery? Saying, yeah, 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 I know, I know you set me free, but I just, this sin, I just can't get past it. Be free, brothers and sisters, today. Be free in the truth that is in Christ. Believe on Him. I want to give us a time of response. Um, During this time of response, I just want you to consider, maybe if you're a Christian here, I want you to consider maybe ways that you've been trying trying to maybe even yoke some of those past sins on yourself or continue to remember them. And I just ask that you'd, you'd pray that the Lord would, re- would completely remove those things. That you would not see that you have to continue to heap, heap the old sins upon yourself. If you're not a Christian here today, I'd encourage you, ask this question. Am I really free? Am I really free from the sin that clings so closely? I'll just give you a minute to respond to that.